This is Radio Plasma, a space dedicated to the exchange of ideas, conversations, stories, music, performances, and randomness. Listen at radioplasma.com. Also, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Welcome to Radio Plasma. I'm Johan Rashi Vega. And today our guest is Megan Murphy, journalist and the creator of a documentary called The Breast Archives, which is the topic of our conversation today because this documentary is going to have a screening at Gateway City Arts. And before this event happens, we want to know the story behind this important piece that is also a story that I feel it connects with the story of many. So Megan, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. So your documentary started as an idea that sparked itself during a travel experience. Yes, it did. I think that it began before that but it was mostly in the unconscious. I had joined a women's group and I started to hear more and more stories that were edgy and filled with passion and anger and longing and knowledge and expertise and all these wide-ranging stories that I didn't really hear a lot in the mainstream from women. It was a kind of a suppressed wisdom. Herbology, maybe some sacred sexuality, suppressed sexuality, you know, women who had been lesbians but had been in the closet, mm. that kind of a thing. And I was hearing in this woman's group all of these visceral stories. And I, I started to realize that women's stories are often body-based stories. They hinge on our experience of our bodies somehow, growing older, being pregnant, struggling with postpartum depression or menopause, and all of the things that women and really society take for granted around the female experience of herself, which is often linked to the body. But in this culture, there's often a kind of a decapitation. There is you're either pregnant or you're not. You're either bleeding or you're not. And all the dimensionality, the all of the sort of stages within your, even your just your menstrual cycle are kind of, it's a black and white approach. And so in a way, we as women start to see ourselves that way, but it's much more complicated. And when you start to open up women, there's a rich tapestry of understanding of the self that you start to hear. But I digress. So I was starting to think about that in this woman's group. I also was confronted with some of my own hang-ups that I had inherited. At one point in this woman's group, we did a sweat lodge. And we were, you know, preparing for this, not knowing what to expect. And came time to enter into the lodge, and it's a very sacred ceremony. And I remember standing there completely naked, and 
I wasn't thinking about going into this lodge, going into the womb of the mother, going into the ancestral kind of field where there might be a message or a knowing that I would encounter. No, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about my dimpled buttocks. I was thinking about my my saggy belly. I was thinking about my my breasts not looking perfect. I was obsessed in, in almost an unconscious way with my self-image. And even though I was doing important woman's work with this woman's group, I was still hung up in a kind of a mainstream relationship with my body. And it made me realize that I had some growing up to do. So that was kind of a backdrop. I also was afraid of getting breast cancer. That was something else that was brewing. I had had an aunt who was diagnosed. I had friends who were being diagnosed. We were all getting mammograms left and right. And it was you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, that era of, you know, mammogram, mammogram, mammogram. It's still that way, but I think things are shifting. I didn't know about, for example, thermography back then. I was just sort of dutifully doing what the doctors told me to do. So I was called back for a second mammogram, and I found myself deeply fearful of cancer, of being sick, of being out of control or not being able to be in control of my own destiny. So there were a number of things going on in my life that kind of set the stage for me when I went off to Egypt. Mm -hmm. But I should tell you one additional piece. I bumped into, I was at a friend's place for lunch. She has a business in East Longmeadow. We were having lunch and she rents out her, some of her offices to visiting healers. And one individual, a man named Dr. Ravi, was visiting from India and he sees clients regularly in East Longmeadow at her offices. So we were sitting, talking and eating lunch and he burst into the room. And he was about to turn around and say, oh, excuse me, excuse me, oh, and he sort of turned around to leave, and then he turned back to me, and he said, you, there's something with your breasts, there's something with your breasts, and then he said, and he wagged his finger at me, and he said, you American women, you do not know how to love your breasts, you do not know how to care for your breasts, and he tisked me and turned and left. That really opened my eyes to a kind of a, a slightly dead-end relationship with my own breasts. Now, mind you, I did a lot of yoga. I was relatively newly married. This is not something that I was cognizant of as a problem. But he kind of awakened something within me. And I went back and saw him a few weeks later, and he didn't even remember me. And I said, you said something to me that really struck me. You said something about my breast. What do you know about breasts? Tell me, what is it that you felt? What is it that you saw? And all he said to me was, 90% of women are unhappy with their breasts. And he paused, and then he said, and I think it's higher than that. Higher than 90%, that is. 90%, and it resonated as true at the time. And I thought to myself, if 90% of women are unhappy with their breasts, 
then that probably explains all this breast cancer. It must be linked, right? This sort of learned disconnection, a kind of a body dysmorphia. I mean, maybe. So the wheels started to turn. That was that final thing that happened before I went to Egypt. So I went off to Egypt, it's true, and it was an unexpected trip, I suppose you could say. Well, I had been paying for it for almost a year. It was a big, ambitious trip that I was making. I was called to go for reasons that to this day remain explicable. But when I had seen descriptions of all the temples along the Nile, temples I'd never even heard of, I felt this longing, this yearning, this deep curiosity about them, because According to the itinerary, each temple represented a kind of an archetype, divine love or infinity download, all of these really intriguing archetypes. And I thought, oh, you know, I have to go and see this. So, and but right before the trip happened, Mubarak, who had been the president of Egypt for 40 years, stepped down from power after, of course, that, 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 that sort of dramatic uprising that occurred in January of 2012. No, it was 2011. It was 2011. And the country was full of unrest, really across North Africa. And to this day, it's still the tremors are being felt So I was like, I can't go. I don't think I can go. And then the leader of the trip said, well, you'll lose all of your money if you cancel now. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I'm going. But I did have a friend who was Egyptian, and she reassured me that I would be fine. And I was with a reputable tour group. And so I went. And I got to Egypt, and the country had been emptied of tourists. There was no one there. So, and the tour group itself had been reduced from 20 to seven. And one of the the women, the one woman that I did know who had planned to go wasn't there. So I was there with seven women, all of whom were strangers to me, but we're, you know, we've since become, we're deep friends now. So we got there and we started to move around the country. And at each of these sites, these temples, these ruins, there was no one there but us. And I think that's the important backdrop to really establish because I think the energy of these ancient temples is probably usually diluted with all of the tourist photo snapping Hawaiian shirt kind of people. Not that I'm trying to in any way demean tourists in Egypt, but you know how it is. It's crowded, it's noisy, people want to go to the bathroom or they want to get some lunch. This was different. It was completely empty. So while I was at I started to move around these temples and I immediately started to notice all of the the goddesses, the women who were standing tall, statues and also reliefs etched into two, three hundred feet high ruins and temples. And in every site, the women were topless and they were just grandiose and beautiful and outstretched arms and sort of not posed in a formal way, but kind of a lifestyle gesturing and and in the middle of a movement and just all of them topless. I mean, not 100% of the time, but certainly significant amounts. And I started to notice the breasts, the many different breasts, the many different women. And I thought to myself, how refreshing to see 
women's breasts exposed. I wonder why there are no exposed breasts in the American culture. My mind started wondering about the absence, the profound absence of the female form in that natural kind of a way. Of course, you see the mother and child motif in that sort of exposed breast. But really, I, of course, knew that you would be fine if you nursed your child in public. And everyone knows that breasts are taboo in this culture. Heck, you can't even be a four-year-old girl on a public beach without being frowned upon with your exposed mammary glands. So the culture is really twisted around the breasts. And I'd never thought of that before. But I just started to wonder about that sort of aspect of our culture. And it was at one temple in particular, I believe it was Filet, which is this temple down near the Sudanese border. It's a temple that's specifically dedicated to the very famous goddess Isis, who everyone knows is considered to be the mother of creation. And she was, you know, the cat's meow, kind of like the mother of Jesus, Mary, had fall, you know, subsequently became. And in fact, if you go to ruins in Rome and in London, you'll see Isis a lot, a lot more than people realize. Mm-hmm. In the old botanical gardens in Bath, England, in London, there's a profound presence of the Egyptian culture and, of course, Isis and her husband, who apparently was also her brother, his name is Osiris. And as everyone or most people know, or many people know, Osiris was murdered, dismembered, and then Isis went and gathered his pieces at the many temples along the Nile. It's a fascinating story. It's a, you know, it's a myth, a legend, but she put all of the pieces of her beloved back together again, and then managed to copulate and conceive Horus, the famous savior son. (laughs) You know, it's not so dissimilar from the story of, of really Christ. But anyway, I digress. Egypt is a fascinating place to go to. It starts to open many doors and parallels in our lives that I had never considered before. I was raised a Catholic, and there are many symbols of Egypt that are embedded in the Catholic faith that I had never noticed before. So I've had a lot of fun, and I've been deeply intrigued in the years that have followed to learn more about my own culture and the influence of Egypt upon it. But I'll get back to Philae, the beautiful temple near the Sudanese border, where I was walking along, minding my own business, at this enormous, majestic, stupendously magnificent temple, alone. I mean, the six other women had scattered off somewhere, and I was completely and utterly alone. And as I meandered through these timeless corridors, I felt this deep reverence for a people, for a humanity that had been there before. I felt a deep sense of love. I must have come upon an icon of Isis or Nephthys or Sekhmet or Hathor. Hathor is also very present at all these temples, the goddess of love and beauty, I believe. But I got this powerful feeling that the breasts contain a wisdom, an ancient wisdom that's present through time that we can perhaps even tap into if we decide to connect 
cellularly with our own signature wisdom that courses through our blood, that courses through the memory, the cellular memory that we all have. And it was a completely new and profound idea for me. I mean, I was really struck by the the detailed imprint that it made upon me. And I think I probably even poo-pooed it in the moment, but I couldn't shake it. And it was with me. It was implanted from that moment on. And I became convinced (laughs) that the breast contained some kind of an primordial intelligence, an ancient lingering wisdom. And I thought, how fascinating, how wonderful. I love this idea. And as I may have already mentioned, I was a full-time producer at the time, and I am the queen of the interview. I love to dig into people's memories, their psyches, what makes them tick, what's their passion, you know, how does that passion inform their work? That's my livelihood to question and to inquire. And I thought to myself, well, if the breasts contain an ancient wisdom, What a great sit-down interview opportunity this would be for women. I can ask women what they think, and who knows what'll happen. It was originally just a high-concept idea. And that's how it all began. As fate would have it, I put the question out there to my little community in Western Massachusetts, and I mentioned that I was, many people knew, I was a full-time television producer, And I was doing this woman's group, also known as a mystery school, and that I had just returned from Egypt, and that I was a world traveler. I've been many places. I was recently in the Galapagos, for example, and I have been around, as they say, and of course, the more you travel, the bigger the world becomes, but people knew that about me. So I suggested the breast might contain an ancient wisdom, and if you might be interested in in coming and answering that question, I'd like to conduct some interviews. And I did mention at the time that I would be asking the women to remove their blouses and tops during the interview. I was curious about the way the revelation of the breasts would conjure a certain kind of a courage, a certain kind of a knowing, what that would do. I I wasn't sure, but I knew that that was going to be important. And I said, anytime you're ready, it could be at the end of the interview. It didn't matter to me as long as they understood that I would ask them to do that. And the women were intrigued. I had a great response. About 12 people respond in fairly quick order. And in the end, it was nine who came. Nine who consented to my various requirements and agreements. And as soon as we got started with the interviews, and I sent them the questions ahead of time, of course. Of course, I kept a couple of questions in my back pocket, as you can, I'm sure, appreciate. But as soon as the interviews were underway, I knew I had tapped into something unique and special because... The women had never shared these stories before. I was asking them about their first memories of their bodies as they changed, as their identities as women, as their memories of maybe being shamed or humiliated 
or feeling teased or not or inadequate, those kinds of questions. I was sort of digging around in the adolescent corridor. And of course, as an interviewer, I know how you get into people's deeper recesses. You go back in time. And of course, I was sharing my own stories. I was opening up too. I always had hangups about my breasts. I thought my breasts were ugly. I thought they were too big. I was never proud of my breasts at all. And when I shared that, the women, of course, began to open up. And of course, I knew that supposedly 90% of women were unhappy with their breasts. So I figured I'm certainly not alone. And I used to think that I was the only one who didn't like her breasts. But this 90% thing really kind of gave me the confidence to sort of ask women, what is your relationship with like with your breasts and how have you coped with that disconnect? So we went into these interviews, each of them lasted about an hour and oh, did they open up. They were laughing, they were crying. It was alarming, the stories. There was a lot of sexual violation that they shared. There was a lot of firsts. There were triumphs. There was uh, moments of hilarity, of great hilarity, that they had forgotten about and, and really were enjoying retelling. So my little tiny team, I had a makeup artist and a camera operator. And it was just the three of us in this little dark studio. And afterwards, we looked at each other and we thought, wow, that's really something, that content is really substantive and we should do another round of interviews and that's what I did. So I went, did a second round a couple months later and I thought to myself, I have some beautiful content here that's worth putting together into a documentary and that's by golly what I'm gonna do. And so I had a tiny nest egg, not much, and I had been at WGBY at that point for 12 years, and I was thinking about what I would do next, maybe. I maybe wasn't even thinking about it, but suddenly this fell into my lap, and I thought, women's stories. That's what I'm now officially interested in, and that's what I'm gonna pursue. And so I thought it would take me about a year to do. I resigned from WGBY and I kind of got started on the documentary and <laughs> it was a very complicated process to put together a feature length documentary, but I'm certainly richer for the experience in so many ways and I'm so proud of the work and so proud of the women, the participants who are part of the Breast Archives. It sounds a transformative experience for yourself and for everybody who got involved in this process, listening to how your experience and your perspective on trying to dig more into what is the meaning of these emotions and these images that you are seeing in every temple, the empowerment that brings when you start not questioning, but yes, pondering about why this is something that is not spoken more openly. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be answering your question specifically. What I found is that our bodies hold story. Our hands, our arms, our knees, the bottom of our feet, certainly our vaginas and our wombs, and then the breasts. The breasts are an outward sign of your changing female shape. It's the most public, private space that we have as women, and people think nothing of commenting 
on your breast size and you're only 10, 9, 11, you're not really comfortable with that, but people do it anyway. And so that whole thing begins. And so I think a lot of women have a lot of story at their breasts. Interestingly, the heart is there too. And in this culture, we're taught that our emotions, our feelings are not as important as the latest football scores or this latest science data. You know, we grow up being sort of neglecting our feelings and emotions and not really always knowing how to express our feelings and emotions because our, they're not highly valued in this culture. So the breasts and the heart have a wounding and a kind of an armor here. It's a place that can be examined and explored. I think it has to happen gently. And that's what I kind of figured out how to do. What I noticed is that once the women removed their bras, that there was then nothing to hide. And they opened up in the most remarkable way, more than I expected. They kind of leaned forward and their backs straightened and their chins came up. And, you know, I call it the triangle, you know, the, the face and the breasts. That's like the essence of a woman. You see that when you see that triangle. So, and I think when a woman is seen in that way, there's a pride that comes forward, a self-knowing, a kind of a, what have I got to lose kind of aspect of herself is, is suddenly there too. You know, it's like, well, ask me anything, I'll tell you, because this is who I am. So it's an opportunity for women to see themselves in a, a, a completely refreshing way. Thinking about the power of that triangle, I think that is the power combined with the wisdom and the essence of life itself that possibly the patriarchy sees as the most fearing power. Therefore, the reaction is to suppress it and to make it invisible. I would agree with that. And they've been able to do that very successfully. And one of the ways they've done that is by severing our relationship with nature. Women's bodies are very natural. The monthly cycle, become pregnant, that's a very natural experience that the baby comes out readily at, at the precise time, the milk comes for the baby. It's all a very natural process that is replicated in nature all around us. So when you put the birthing process under fluorescent lights and under the care, the exclusive care of doctors and hospitals and bureaucracies and systems and institutions, you take away the woman's natural instinctive power and self-knowing around that, those functions. So there has been a deep training that's occurred. And I think by separating, you know, this man versus nature thing that we're taught in grade school, we're not, you know, at one with the grass, we, we mow the grass, <laughs> we sprinkle the grass with chemicals. <laughs> we are um, doing battle with the grass, with animals, with bugs with all of it, with the weather, you know, we've been taught to be separate. And I think by extension, we've learned a separation from our body. And I'll tell you another way that that gets reinforced. When a girl has her period, we're not taught to sit on a brown towel and contemplate 
the flow of our menstrual cycle, we're taught to stuff it up with bleached products and to have a brand loyalty with that product. It's not so much a question of what's the nature, what's the sort of the characteristic of your blood flowing monthly, and it's a woman's lifetime she flows. It's more Tampax or Playtex, that's the question. The same with the deodorant. We can't tolerate our own musky signature emanating from our underarms. We've got to cover that up. We think, oh, band versus secret. Oh, what's the brand that we're loyal to? We don't think about what the pheromones are that are emanating from our natural bodies. And that might give us an advantage, really. They say that the pheromones that emanate from our natural bodies help us connect with our natural mate, a true friend, you know, sort of like-minded bodies, like-minded thinking. I don't know. It's just a theory. But, you know, we haven't really thought a lot about that in this culture. Mm -hmm. And we, we certainly put the bras on as soon as there is any sign of the natural body, the mammary gland. And I do think that patriarchy has a very deep-seated fear of the mammary gland, of the female body, of the natural systems, because they're life-giving. They bring forth life. A woman bleeds, she doesn't die. She creates life. Man can't do that. They can barely do that in the test tube. You know, women have this profound dimensionality that patriarchy doesn't want us to focus on whatsoever, and they've trained women not to. And women have had a hell of a time. God only knows how long. Thousands of years they've just been stuck, pregnant, in a war-torn world, you know, trying to raise children. And, you know, it's a kind of an enforced slavery, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Now with the backstory of you being in Egypt pretty much by yourself, so possibly the contact with local people was minimal as well. But I was wondering if you got any opportunity to maybe talk to any woman in Egypt, knowing that the mentality, particularly in this moment of turmoil, where the very conservative ideologies of people not allowing women to even show more than their eyes in some instances, how does that translate on that empowerment that is something way more radical than the experiences that we see in the Western world? Well, I have thought about it, and it's not really... I mean, I only have theories and opinions. I certainly am not a, a student of Islam, and the, you know, it's extending culture. And I want to make the point that the Egyptian culture was different. That's a different race altogether. That is suppressed information, by the way. The, that culture lasted 38,000 years, and it was a matrilineal culture. And then it was the 18th dynasty, you know, with Akhenaten, that it, it ended. And the Hyksos, who were coming really down from Israel and Saudi Arabia, that began to kind of take over. By then, the it was the culture was like, kind of the fall of Rome. It was like the fall of Egypt. And Akhenaten actually did a company move up to 
the British Isles. That's what they say. And I've looked into it, and there's certainly historical evidence, and there's historical record to support that. But I digress. So it's not the same culture, the mm-hmm. Egyptian culture, and those, and it was known as Kemet, K H M E T. Egypt is a newer incarnation. So mm-hmm. I talked with the children, and I was with plenty of men on that trip because the men are the tour guides, the men are the captains of the boats, they're the ones driving the vans. You know, you talk to the men. I'm trying to think if I talked with a women, I'm sure I must have, because humanity is the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. You look in someone's eyes and we are all the same, but it's true. They're covered or under the chadra, especially in Egypt. The whole body is covered. And then there's one little fabric strip that goes down the bridge of the nose and it covers the mouth. So it covers the top of the nose, but just it comes down between the eyes. Literally, that's what you see, their eyes. And the men all say, and we heard it over and over again, my wife is so beautiful that she has to be covered. And that's this euphemism that they use to justify the, the cultural mores. And they're not in school. They're not learning. They're not developing their minds. I mean, it's obviously a rich culture that I would never even presume to in any way question, but it's a deeply patriarchal culture. I mean, that's a patriarchy on steroids. You have the the father himself is considered to be the God in the household. I mean, that's what I learned when I was a kid. And it's different. They say Islam is different in the river cultures than it is in the desert cultures. And there are great variances But Egypt is pretty intense. I mean, a lot of the guys have that scar on their forehead Mm -hmm. because they're praying towards Mecca every day and they pray so often that there's this bruise that's permanent. You see that a lot. So, you know, you can say what you will about that kind of a faith and whether or not, I don't know, I was on the plane with families. I noticed a lot. I'm a humanities observer, and I noticed that the women are left alone with the children, and the men just hang around and drink tea. And the women are basically raising the kids, and that's what they're responsible for. And the boys are treasured, and the girls are basically married off as early as 10 or 11, or the marriage has begun to be arranged probably earlier than that. I mean, I haven't traveled enough you know, I mean, I was in Morocco also. I saw the same kind of culture there. I actually am very, very drawn to Allah and to the Quran and to the storytelling tradition. I actually am deeply drawn to the culture. So don't get me wrong, but the women are definitely in trouble. And <laughs> I certainly noticed that most of the women were at least 100 pounds overweight. Um, The food is extremely bread and starch driven, meat driven, and it's a simple way of life. I mean, there's a lot of poverty. People are very poor. I mean, the men are very poor. And so when you're disempowered like that, you begin to beat your wife because you're frustrated. You beat your animals. You beat your children because you are so frustrated. You're so disempowered. You know, you see that. You see that in the Appalachia in America, not being able to access wealth and the finer things in life, I guess. I don't know. I'm not an anthropologist. I can only give you my observations. And I don't even know if I'm answering your question. 
more like thinking about those possible interactions that could happen or not. And just by not even having them is enough reason to get something out of it, to see that in this case, patriarchy is so embedded in most cultures that regardless of the faith, it's more about the patriarchy and that model. Uh, I have something else I want to tell you. Do you know that at all the temples, all the body parts were scratched out? Even the male phallus is scratched out. There's a lot of nudity in the temples, as I mentioned earlier, the exposed breasts. I mean, they have gone to great lengths to scratch out any kind of body part that's exposed at all of those temples in Egypt. And I really don't think they have the right to do that, but they've done it. I mean, that's how fearful they are of the body. Even on the boat that I was traveling on, and we became friends with the crew, wonderful men, family men, fathers and sons, beautiful people. But I had this one little statuette I had purchased for a friend back home of, of Isis nursing her son, Horace. And it was just a simple statuette. And I left it on the dining room table with other things. We were all acquiring different items and our cabins were too small. So we left a couple of things in the common area. And oh, they did not like that statue. I would wake up in the morning. It would always have been tucked under some blanket or some put away in a cabinet. And I would have to find it. And they just made them uncomfortable to see a woman nursing a child. So that's a deep-seated aversion to a very natural process that they themselves probably experienced. And the whole breastfeeding thing, that's our very first experience of euphoria, of universal love, of nurturing. And to shut that away as immoral or as, you know, dirty or questionable, it says so much about the way they've been programmed to feel power. It's a kind of a program, right? It's a socially learned narrative, right? I mean, how else do you explain such a thing? Religion, too. I mean, it's religion is probably mm -hmm. driving. I will think that is patriarchy, pure patriarchy, and this obsession with power, and then utilizing faith and religion as the vessel to oh, justify yeah. it. Oh, yeah. It's the same effect that we see in our culture in America, pretty similar. Yeah. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are actually all cousins. They have the same origins. They have, the, you know... Islam considers Christ to be a saint or considers Christ to be a holy man. They have incorporated one another's sort of Old Testaments to a great extent, certainly Judaism and Christianity. But Islam is very much linked once you look, start looking at the details of it. And of course, the idea of an abstract God, that's a key piece. It's not a God you can see. It's not a God you can worship. It's in the abstract. If you have an abstract God, no one can question your formula. You can just say it was written in the Bible, so you have to follow those rules because God said so. Well, everyone is afraid of being punished or afraid of being damned or afraid of going to hell or afraid of dishonoring 
their grandparents or their parents or their husband, you know, everyone just falls into line. But the abstract God is a, a powerful piece that makes it work. And then the antiquity of it, kind of taking ownership of the history, saying history began on this date and this is what Jesus said and this is what the Pharisees said and not really in any way providing an opportunity to ask even any questions about it. Like, for example, I was mentioning the link between the Egyptian culture and the Romano, Britannia, Romana culture. That's not widely known at all. But there are overlaps there through time. Anyway, we are told what we're told, but a lot of information is withheld from us. And that's what I learned when I went to Egypt is that, gosh, you know, they didn't build these temples with ropes and pulleys. No, these were made in a way that can't be explained. And who were these people that made these temples and these pyramids? And we don't really know. And people don't really seem to want to ask or maybe even want to know because it puts us in a position of questioning the values of our friends and neighbors, our loved ones, our grandparents, our own culture. And it becomes a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Going back to the documentary and thinking about the transformative experience for you and for the women involved in it by revealing themselves and opening up and sharing their stories and connecting through the power and wisdom of the breasts. What is the experience that you have seen from people who have seen your documentary and they felt that connection as well? So yes, the women in my film revealed their breasts and the breasts of the women in my film are very different. Some are pendulous, some are large, some are small. Well, they're like a fingerprint. They're, they're each different. And to provide a clear view of women's breasts is an important offering, I think, in this day and time. A lot of people say to me, you know, if I see a woman nursing her child, I want to look, but I don't feel that I can. I feel like I have to avert my eyes because they'll think I'm a pervert. <laughs> That's what people have said to me. But what they really want to do is watch and look and take in this very natural process. And what the Breast Archives provides is an opportunity for people to just look upon a breast and not have to avert their eyes. And time and time again, what people have also told me, at first in the, during the film, they stare at the breast and, oh, oh my gosh, it's a breast. Mm -hmm. I, I get to look at it and I don't get to feel somehow wrong or bad. But then they don't look at the breast anymore. They're just looking at the woman. And there's an aspect of the woman that comes forward that the breast then supports. So you stop needing to see the breast. After you get a good dose of the breast, you don't need to look at it anymore. It's just a breast. And I think we've made breasts so titillating, no pun intended, that we become obsessed with them when they're really just like the noses on our faces. They're all different. They're all unique. They're all fascinating. They're all beautiful. They're all ours to carry forward uniquely in a lifetime. And to take that away from women is to deeply disservice them, to deeply sort of handicap them. Because then there's a kind of a 
existential shame or discomfort. You don't know where it began or how, so it's existential in that way. So that's the big offering of the film is the simple presence of, you know, eight different breast types. I would say nine, except that one of the gals chickened out at the last minute, but we forgive her. (laughs) But the breasts are there to see, and I think that's fun. And a lot of the women through the interview process sort of reclaim their breasts start to talk about what they like about their breasts in a way they'd never had a chance to do before. The more they talked about their breasts, the more they sort of straightened their back, the more they sort of began to glean that wisdom that I was looking for originally. The more the breasts became a part of the they that they were putting forward, the more depth they brought from themselves, from within. So that, in the end, was kind of the wisdom that I was seeking. A breast-based wisdom, a heart-based wisdom that's been needlessly covered. And I'm not saying that everyone should be gallivanting around topless. I don't think that that's the answer. But I think that women certainly shouldn't be hiding their breasts from one another. And I think that's what's happened in this culture. And I think men know that's true. There's a disconnect that women have learned by extension from that privacy, from that modesty. And I think it's done women a great disservice because there might be a sisterhood that could form by being open about not just our breasts, because that's really superficial in the end, but about the stories and the memories Mm -hmm. that we've had that are linked to our bodies. You know, women love to talk about giving birth and women love to talk about learning that they're pregnant and that magical time of of the body changing. We don't do that very often as women and we need to do it more. And I think those kinds of conversations would be helped by gatherings of women who take their tops off and share their breast stories. I think as an idea, it has a promising future. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually developed what I call the gal pal kit. Mm. (laughs) Yes. And it encourages women to get together, sisters, close friends. I mean, why not? Bear their breasts with one another and open up. And the gal pal kit contains six questions from the original interviews from the breast archives. Handpicked questions that are the perfect icebreakers for women to open up about. And then I've been making a breast balm for years with my great friend Lenore Anderson, an herbalist who is just an incredible tincture and lotion maker. But it's just a balm, like a lotion. And I've enclosed a breast balm in the package so that women can sort of take care of their breasts. Because one thing I have found that's helped me reconnect with my breasts over these past years, and many other women too, enjoy the breast balm is that care that regular care of the breast sort of tracking the landscape allowing the heart to sort of be awakened from a care a tender care of the breasts you know self-care is all the rage now and your breast care is beautifully fits right into that practice so the gal pal kit contains questions it contains a breast balm and these little ramekin sharing cups and then this wonderful 
kind of statement of encouragement that, you know, supports women in doing it. And it makes a great gift for women, I think, the gal pal kit. We're just working on our prototype now. And that's what, I, what I've been thinking of when you propose this idea of gathering and share stories. This is a perfect idea and a perfect way to continue educating any gender about the importance oh, yeah. and the relevance, the respect, and the real glorification breasts deserve. Oh my gosh, men are a huge recipient of, be they really benefit from the Breast Archives. They're my biggest fans in many ways because men know that women are disconnected from their breasts. They have loved ones who have breast cancer. They can see the way women are ashamed of their bodies in a way that's slightly inexplicable. They know they've been there from the beginning. And men wield a lot of power in women's relationship with their breasts because it's men oftentimes who we share our breasts with when we're young. It's the most intimate thing you can possibly do. It's our first intimacy, is to choose to share our breasts with a boyfriend. It's a profound moment of trust, of pride, of intimacy. And men love that about women. And women have an exquisite experience with men in that moment, too, that's very precious, very tender. So men have been there with us right from the beginning. In addition, men have mammary glands, too. They might be dormant, but they're there, right on their chest wall. And according to Dr. Ravi, and I had, well, I mean, of course, I know as a sensual woman that men's breasts are very erogenous. And I've heard they're as erogenous as women's or not. Men don't realize this, but women's nipples are not always erogenous. In fact, some women don't like their nipples touched one bit. And I know men feel that way about their nipples. And some men feel differently and women feel differently. And it's a whole hodgepodge of stories. And that's one of the great sections of my film is the various sensations associated with nipples. And, and it's their link to orgasm and, or not. And it's just a great, wonderful diversity of sensation. And men are there with us in that regard, but it's, it's almost like a taboo topic for men. And I think that men can join this conversation by seeing the film and by being a part of this examination. I think it's very freeing and, and healing and healthy for men to be a part of this. W women have to kind of lead the way, I think. And then I think it'll start to open up for men. But I think men are a huge part of my audience. I mean, I have almost a million views on, on YouTube. And I'll tell you, over 600,000 of those views are of one segment that I did years ago before the film was finished. It's simply titled A Mother's Breast. 660,000 views, 98% men. The breasts are exposed, yes, but the content is all about the discovery of the breasts, the milk, the adjustments she's had to make, the humor along the way, the marvel at the way 
perfect temperature, perfect nutritional sort of substance for my babies. And, and men love these stories and they've been there. So I think men want to know more about the breast than that they're sexy, that they can sell beer, that they're bikini contests or selling cars or whatever. Breasts have been exploited and men have been exploited in that exploitation. So I think it's refreshing for men to see real women, real breasts, real stories. So this is a perfect opportunity to learn about the breast archives and to actually see the documentary and this screening happening on June 28th in Gateway City Arts, 92 Ray Street, Holyoke, Massachusetts, where the screening also is going to have a forum where some of the participants in the documentary are going to be present, right? That's right. So far, three of the gals from the film will be there. Chef Leslie Carrier, yoga teacher Teresa Lorenko, and then Reverend Sandra Harrick will be there. And I there might be more. In addition, I have a Dr. David Selaff from University of Massachusetts, who's an expert on this microbiome that breast milk creates in a baby's esophagus. He's sort of a leading scientist around the wonders of breast milk. And he's learned a lot as a man and a very high scholarly sort of mantle of expertise about the culture's relationship with breasts and breast milk. And he's an extremely insightful, marvelous human being. And I'm so glad that he's going to be there. In addition, we have Jennifer Allen, who is just this body positivity guru for many hundreds of people. She has her own breast story that set her off on this sort of body shame kind of life that she lived as a high school student and and she's had to sort of find her way in the world um, and reclaim her body and she has done so but the breasts are part of often why a woman becomes disconnected from her body and and Jennifer is a great illustration of of that kind of story which many of us have and in addition to that, we have this mother-daughter duo from Brattleboro, Elise, who is a doula, and her daughter Sparrow, who is a marvelous young woman, a 15-year-old. And they just talk about their relationship with their breasts, with society, with each other, the bonding that they experience after seeing the film as mother-daughter. And so I think it's going to be a lively conversation. I think it's going to be wonderful, the, our panel discussion after the film and I should also add that prior to the film we're going to have three and possibly more but I think three spoken word artists who have rich and raw poems they're going to share about sort of having a body in this culture and sort of what it has meant and it kind of wets the whistle for the audience before the lights go down and the film begins. This is going to be a complete experience, not only the screening, but appreciation through art and deep conversation. An amazing opportunity to go deeper in the wisdom of the breast through the breast archives. What will be your words of encouragement for the public to come? 
Oh, I encourage people to come and see the Breast Archives. If you've heard about it, it was five years in the making, a true labor of love. Uh, There were 40 local people involved with getting it finished. I had an Academy Award-nominated composer do the score. We've got Gail Kabacher's work associated with the film, and she's had the New Yorker cover five times. She lives in Ashfield. Um, We have all these superb artists associated with this project and then of course the women in the film itself are mostly local in fact 85% of them are local from right around here but it's a great film it was just picked up by Canopy, which is a prestigious educational distributor. Now anyone with a library card can see the film in Canada and in North America and United States, and to have been selected by Canopy is a tremendous honor for us. So it's a testament to the quality of the film. And the people, you know, the gatekeepers are really starting to notice that. So please come and support us and our beloved endeavor. It's a great conversation, certainly eye-opening and certainly mind-expanding. And I will certainly hope to see you there. How can people get more information about your project, about the Breast Archives, and if they would like to maybe reach out to you for more information? Well, you can learn all about the project on my website, thebreastarchives.org. I have my YouTube channel, which is the Breast Archives channel. I have a Vimeo channel, the Breast Archives. I have a Facebook page that's fairly active. I have, you know, many followers around the world on my Facebook page, which is the Breast Archives. So I'm out there. You can find me. And I am local, I'm around, and I would love to hear from you. So this is our conversation with Megan Murphy the creator of the Breast Archives and the invitation is open for the screening and the forum at Gateway City Arts this June 28th at 7pm and all the information for this event also is available in the posting of this session on radioplasma.com Megan, thank you so much for your time, for this conversation and for putting up this work that I know is going to be really empowering for pretty much anyone who sees it I hope so. Thank you. With this, we conclude our conversation with Megan Murphy in our session in Radio Plasma that has been recorded in the spaces of Cohort 92 in Gateway City Arts in Holyoke, Massachusetts. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashivega. Thank you for listening.